welcome to the PsychoWise podcast. We explore how women can expand in pleasure and wisdom spanning all cycles and seasons of womanhood. This is a body-centered approach to living where your body is your personal resource for you to live as the woman you came here to be. I'm Indigo Moon, and if you want to turn on your cyclic woman and wisdom, if you want to become untamed and awake to your own power, then join me as we dive into all areas of embodied soulful living. Supporting women across all seasons and phases of womanhood is at the heart of my own work, and that includes pregnancy and birth. But with the state of obstetrics, midwifery, and even the doula profession becoming so regulated and medicalized, I often find it tricky to open a conversation that's built on participating in a system that I feel is fundamentally disrespectful to women. And honestly, I'm only interested in highlighting people that truly support women as authority in their own pregnancy and birth journey, because to me, that's at the heart of what we need to shift. That's why I'm so excited to connect with Olivia Bowens today, who's a holistic doula, birth educator, and birth photographer, with her eyes wide open to the mistreatment of pregnant birthing mothers, and is actively doing her part in supporting women to create a new paradigm of woman-centric, community-supported care. Olivia is based in Maryland, U.S., and is advocating and educating birthing mothers and doulas on truly mother-centered birth, along with speaking up on racism in pregnancy and birth care, and what the real reason is that home birth is feared by many. Welcome, Olivia. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about all the birthy things. (laughs) Me too. And I'd really like to just start with what brought you into birth work. I'm curious if it was the birth of your own children or if you were a doula before then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm like many other people. I was brought in by my own experience. And what's interesting about my personal birth, my first um, birth, was that it was very holistic. It was very primal. It was basically untouched. I went into, I had a midwife and I used a birthing center and it was just something that, you know, I just kind of knew in my gut, like I don't want to be in the hospital. I had been in hospitals before and I knew that is not the environment that I wanted to be in for birth. Mm. So when I went into labor, um, I went to the birth center and I remember just like so many first time moms. I remember being like, these contractions are so intense. I've got to be like, you know, either halfway there or like right 10 centimeters. (laughs) And, you know, I get in and she's like, you're at about two. And I was like, I remember I just wanted to like cuss her out. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) And, you know, there's this rule, like if you're not, in quote-unquote active labor, then you can't be admitted. So Mm. they kind of gave me this option of, like, you can go home. And I remember looking at my husband like, I am not getting back in that car (laughs) and going all the way back home. So you better figure something out. 
So there was this, um, it's kind of like a hotel across the street from the birth center. And we ended up just checking in there and staying there throughout my entire labor, which was probably the best decision that we made because I didn't have to go back home and get back in the car. And I was literally for 17 hours, I was in that hotel room and it was just me and the baby. (laughs) And um, it was hard because I had not prepared myself. Like I had not read any books. I didn't do any like informational preparation. I took Mm -hmm. like that generic hospital class um, that's like, you know, five hours long and they just dump a whole bunch of information on you. But as far as comfort measures, I had no idea what to do. Mm -hmm. So at that point, it was just like me, my very high uh, pain tolerance and, (laughs) you know, just the will. And hour after hour, I just remember being like, this is the most crazy thing I've ever experienced and I'm allowing myself to go through it (laughs) like what is wrong with me but yeah it was just I pulled on that that inner strength and And you had a strong feeling that you wanted to be undisturbed and unmedicalized yeah and the undisturbed part not so much like I I really wanted help like I remember asking my midwife like what do I do I, I need like I, I wanted her to be almost like a doula even though I didn't know what that was at the time mm-hmm. um but because I wasn't like in active labor I didn't have that option to be with her so I had to be by myself and just yeah. me and my husband And, you know, after a while, he got really tired because he had, like, just gotten off of work and I went into labor as soon as he came home. So it it was just hours of just me and the baby and just, like, going through it. And we went back to the birth center because he was like, I feel like you are changing, like, your demeanor is changing, so let's go. And he was right. And so I was around, like, eight or nine centimeters. So I had gone to the birth center for maybe... I was in there for maybe like an hour at most before she was born. So my birth was really, really undisturbed, Um, which I'm not even, I didn't even fully realize it until I'm like reiterating it right now. But that process for me was something I didn't even fully think about until I got pregnant again. It was just like, whew. Glad that's over. Moving yeah. on, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and then a year later, I got pregnant with my second daughter. And the moment I got pregnant, I was like, I got to figure out what I'm going to do. Because I know I want to have my baby naturally again. But I don't want to go through that experience of feeling like I was suffering. Yeah. And that, you know, it led me down the rabbit hole. I started reading a lot of articles, listening to podcasts. And um, this was right after I had graduated from college. So I was kind of in this gray area of I don't really know what I'm about to do, like career wise. So that was the first time after leaving school where I was like fascinated with something. And I was like, I think this is it. Like, (laughs) I cannot stop learning about this stuff I was like borderline obsessive (laughs) and I remember just thinking to myself at about six or seven months like 
what if I keep learning about this? What if this is not just like a couple of months kind of thing? What if I just keep going? And at that point, things just aligned. I ended up taking a um, a doula training at about seven months pregnant. Oh, wow. And from there, I pretty much knew this is the field of work that I want to be in. And I went on and I had my baby and that experience was totally crazy and sporadic, but also amazing. And it taught me a lot and it kind of solidified like, all right, I definitely have the birth worker, you know, in my blood. So, yeah. So did you have a doula for that birth? Was that part of the journey for you? Well, that was what was kind of so paradoxical is that I had like 10 doulas because I was in training (laughs) and my training was very, um, like they had a big emphasis on us building a relationship. Like from day one, they were like, these are your sisters, you know? So I, I had a lot of emotional support throughout my pregnancy and Mm -hmm. just being able to be around, you know, that feminine energy. It was, it was great. But when it came to my actual birth, um, the quick story is that I wanted to birth at home or in a home um, environment, but I was closer to the hospital when I was in transition. So I ended wow. up going to the hospital <laughs> and no one was like, they were, we were all kind of communicating, like someone go to Olivia and she's in labor. But by the time anyone was ready to like meet me, the baby was already born. So it was a very <laughs> uh, whirlwind experience. But it was pretty cool, honestly. I wouldn't trade that in for the perfect birth with the doula and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was your perfect birth, right? And birth is wild mm-hmm. either way. It can't really be controlled and planned down to every second anyway. Exactly. And it literally was like, you know, in the movies where the water breaks and she's like, running into the hospital and the baby's coming out and it's like, ah, and everyone's rushing. It was like, that was the caliber of wildness. And when I look back, I'm like, that was pretty cool. You know, <laughs> the the calm, the calm, serene birth, that's awesome. But then you have those births that are just like wild. And yeah, I loved it. So I guess too, because there was so wild and fast there wasn't very much room for or risk of much intervention because you were just birthing (laughs) right well my thing was I guess I'll get into a little bit more detail and I just want to make a disclaimer before I get into this Mm -hmm. you know just make your own decisions do your own research tap into your own intuition you know don't go based off of other people's stories but um I had GBS and so mm. I know in other countries they don't test for GBS like in Europe they and test for GBS had... in Denmark where I am at the moment okay it depends what countries varies but here in in Denmark they do test yeah and it's it was so weird because it was my first time learning about um what is GBS? What's the risk? Like, what should you do with the alternatives? And it was just so much to take Mm, in at one time. And so I was on the fence of like, do I want to go in? Because they always say like, you know, once your water breaks, go in and get the antibiotics. And 
I was kind of on the fence of like, do I want to just rely on the natural methods that I've, you know, the natural precautions or do I want to rely on the allopathic precautions? And I clearly was not in a grounded decision. I was very up in the air about it. And that reflected because I like tried to get the antibiotics and then I was like, I'm not, not really in active labor, so I'm not really trying to like be fully admitted. And then I was trying to go like see my midwife. It was just a bunch of confusion <laughs> because my life was like in just kind of a confused state. And so what ended up happening was I was in triage for, I want to say at least an hour, but maybe over an hour. Um, and so I was on and off the monitor a little bit. And I finally got like one dose of antibiotics. And then after that, um, I told them I wanted to leave because I was like, I don't really want to be in the hospital. I just really came for for the antibiotics. Mm. And um, that I'm laughing, like joking, but it is a serious thing for you to just walk out of a hospital. That is something like I don't advise anyone to attempt to do that um, unless it's a really strenuous situation. But again, I was kind of, um, I didn't have a clear decision. And I had that fear of like, what if something happens to my baby? And it's because I didn't get these antibiotics. Then I also had this, um, this, this protective almost um, energy that I don't want to have my baby here. This is not, where I want my baby to be born in this hospital. So it was just a very confusing moment for me. And I was also in labor. Yeah. (laughs) And um, my relationship with my midwife was, um, she was a friend. And so it wasn't like a business kind of like, okay, here's the contract and the boom. It wasn't like that. Um, It was, it was borderlining like what you would do if you had a free birth. And you hired a doula and you were just like, hey, be my doula. And you had like a friend Mm -hmm. come to be at your birth. It was kind of like that. Like, I'm a midwife. We're cool. You don't want to, you know, be in the hospital. Like, it was kind of like that. Yeah. And there was a part of me that was comfortable. But then there was a part of me that was really, like, nervous. Like, what if something happens? So long story short, I tried to get the antibiotics to leave to go see my midwife. But my labor... I had spent so much time being calm and learning how to be calm that I didn't realize how far I was progressing. So by the time I tried to leave, I was already like basically crowning. Wow. (laughs) I had to have the baby in the hospital. Wow. Well, that's a lot. And it's also, there's just something too when you're in, when you are pregnant and you are definitely in labor too. It's like, it's, not that you're not clear headed, like that's totally not a fair thing to say, but at least for myself, I know that you just take in information a little bit differently because your instincts are on high alert in a way. Yes. You're you're just so wired to protect your baby. And that's, I feel like it can be tricky sometimes how we process information at that state. However, like in saying that, I hope that's not misconstrued by anyone to say that pregnant women are not capable of, of, of processing information and making their decision because they are. My point is more that ideally we would know kind of most of what we need to know before we get pregnant. 
because it's a lot to digest all these heady things related to the baby we love in our wombs when we are actually already there. Yeah. And, and to me, it's like, you know, numbers don't mean anything when you're in labor. Like if I tell you it's a 0.0000001% chance of something happening to your baby, you're going to be like, well, that's still a chance. (laughs) You know, it's like, it could be the lowest number or it could be the highest number. And you could be like, I don't care. Exactly. It just, it's all of, I think it's really more so about how, you know, our hearts kind of respond and the the language that my care provider was using was very abrasive. There was the word dead baby. The phrase dead baby was thrown around a lot. Mm. Um, you know, no heartbeat, all, you know, all these things that when you say them to a person who's about to have a baby, it's like, it's a lot to, to, to comprehend and then go forth and make a decision. So that's why I always tell my clients, I want you to figure out what your answer to these questions are right now. Yeah. And even though it can change, do the analytical thinking part now. Don't wait to look at the pros and the cons and the benefits and the risks while you're in labor. Cause that's what I was doing. Yeah. And it's nearly impossible because your, your analytical brain is shutting down more and more and more <laughs> as you go in deeper to labor. Totally. So I tell people like, look, if you're not sure about these, you need to sit down and think about them while you're pregnant because once labor hits, it's over. Yeah. Yeah. And especially like the example that you spoke to in your own birth, like the the sort of the communication and words that are often being used in medical settings and also by some midwives that they can be really problematic and kind of screwing the situation and yeah. sort of how we relate the information is everything. So at that point, it's even harder to really sort of stand your ground potentially if necessary. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, it's a really, it's honestly such a tricky thing to navigate. Yeah. And even my husband, it was like, I could tell he wanted to kind of stand behind me in my decision, but he also was kind of like, well, I don't know. Like, I mean, we do want to keep the baby safe and it's like, he was he was the one who was more so like, look, you said you wanted to do this like alternative natural stuff. So just do that. That's what you want to do. But I could tell as the more that she spoke with us and she was like pointing out articles and sending numbers, um, giving us statistics. It was like I could even see him starting to waver a little bit like, OK, is this the right decision? And I just feel like parents should not be put in that position where it's like they're kind of being guilt tripped almost into agreeing with um, no, like medical decisions. Yeah, no, they they shouldn't. Not at all. And that's like where such a big issue is that there just isn't really being practiced true consent, very and sort of objective relaying of information it's very emotional, really, when you listen to some of the words mm-hmm. that are being thrown at mothers in, in birth. It's pretty intense, and it's a lot to deal with. And honestly, for me, I had a free birth with my son uh, six months ago. And for me, a lot of that was, that's what I truly wanted. So that way, there was not really based on sort of what's out there, because it was just my own desire. But in terms of sort of all the decision making, 
I just did not really want anyone to know either or have this discussion simply because of the fear-based information. Most care providers are just not capable of having a, a discussion where it's straight off the bat clear that I'm the one in charge, even if you're sharing information mm-hmm. with me. And fear does not come into the equation. Give me the information and trust that I can be very capable of making that decision. And as long as that's not the situation, there's so much pressure being thrown at mothers because how like there's already there's so much you're carrying already when you're protecting your baby and getting ready to birth and yeah it's just a really unfair situation I agree yeah I agree so I'm curious was that birth also sort of a catalyst in terms of where you're standing today in your work as a doula you have your eyes open to some of the mistreatment that happens in pregnancy and birth care. You speak also under racial injustice that affects women of color in childbirth. And um, yeah, I'm curious about where you are today as a doula that I would say is more, I don't know, is the word radical positive in your world? Because it is to me, but I don't want to throw it at you if that doesn't feel right. And then I'm curious if that came from the birth, after your training, or did it come with just the experience of being a doula? Right. So I think most of it, the radical part is honestly just who I am. I can't attribute it to like um, my birth experience or it's just a part of who I am. And like, Born radical. I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, when I looked at, uh, I got my natal chart done a few different times but this most recent time that I got it done which was the third time um the the person reading it said you have issues with authority mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's very clear you have issues with authority specifically if it's like a male even even a female authority she said it, it's it's like there's just something about you and just like falling in line that doesn't mix and I think when it comes to birth, because birth is so deeply rooted into our um, sovereignty and it's it's almost a meter of how much sovereignty a society or a particular human has, when that is challenged, that brings up a lot of um, rebellion in me because I feel like there are certain things that we all should just have and that should not be in question in birth. I mean, it gets no more primal than birth, right? Yeah. Like, you, everyone needs food. Everything, everyone needs water. Everyone needs shelter. And when we're reproducing, we need to have our autonomy. And the more I got into the history of birth, that is what I think brought out my courage to stand on that rebellious nature because for a long time I was trying to put it away (sighs) like my train even in my training I was kind of the one jokingly I was kind of the one who was like a little on the edge like we got to rein her in a little bit like when we would do our um we did this little like mock birth where someone would like pretend to be in labor and someone would pretend to be the doctor and I remember in my (laughs) turn the doctor the pretend doctor was like trying to push an intervention 
and it was a vaginal exam and they were like okay we're gonna go ahead and I like pulled their hand back and I was like no you can't do that and they were like wait pause like don't put your hands on the doctor and I'm looking at him like what like I'll fight in this hospital room if I have to yeah (laughs) so it was kind of like clear to me in those moments I'm kind of like on the edge a little bit more than everyone else but I did try to I did try to rein that in and be more um I guess I don't know I don't know what the word is but I tried to rein in that radical aspect of myself but it just didn't feel right and the more that I tried to rein it in the faker I felt And I just feel like I'm just regurgitating a whole bunch of stuff that people can find on YouTube and find in blog articles. And that's not the point. There's no point in me doing this when somebody can go find it somewhere else. And I kind of realized that I was doing myself a disservice. And if I just start saying what I actually feel, then that's what's making the difference for people where they're not getting that same information or that same conversation from somewhere else on Google. So yeah, that, that was, I would definitely think that's just a part of who I am and just different lessons kind of brought that out more and more. And it feels good, honestly, because the more that I think about it, the more I feel like, yeah, we should have, we should be able to birth the way we want to period, whatever that means. Yeah, I'm with you. And honestly, it's just so refreshing and inspiring and powerful to find another like a woman like you that is speaking that truth. Because I love birth work. But honestly, I can't stand listening to most birth workers, because there's so much, there's so much medicalization, Mm -hmm. and sort of infantile kind of treatment of women sort of like thrown in there in a way that we almost don't notice it often and I just I just can't stand listening to it like if we don't start at the basis that we support women no matter what like I just can't be on board and like I that's why I love what you're sharing because it's you are standing by women and that's where birth work should start in my opinion yeah and I feel That part about we don't notice it, I think that's the biggest reason why I keep keep talking. Because there are days and months and weeks where I'm like, I don't feel like talking about this no more. You know, you just go take a hypnose baby class and you'll be all right. But (laughs) (laughs) that 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 whole thing of like we are so indoctrinated with this idea of we don't know what's best for our bodies that we regurgitate this things that we're against all the time. And we act um, in a way that is contradictory to what we say that we want. There are so many doulas out here that talk about autonomy. And I'm like, if you want to talk about autonomy, we need to have a real conversation about over 90% of the U.S. population birthing in hospitals because it's practically impossible to have autonomy in a hospital. Yeah. You know, and it's just that ugly stuff that we don't want to admit, but it's the reality. Yeah. And when you look back at the history of birth, which I think is the missing piece, like personally, I feel like if more 
doctors and midwives and doulas knew how we actually got to the point that we're at now, they would better understand why we're in this shit show. Mm. Because from the very inception of modern obstetrics, there was a clear idea that the man is in control, the man knows best, and the woman is just here to be told what to do and how to do it. Yeah. And she's just really here to comply. And when you build a foundation of a whole science and a whole practice and a whole belief system based off of that, there's a lot of undoing that has to happen. And a lot of that undoing is stuff that we don't realize is happening. It's, it's like invisible. Yeah, absolutely. And will you unfold that a little bit more? Because you're so right. It is a missing piece. And will you share more about what the origin of gynecology and obstetrics actually is? Because it's very yeah. unsaid, I think, for a lot of mm -hmm. us at least. Mm -hmm. So I can speak to like the origin of modern obstetrics and gynecology for the U.S. Yeah. And it's a pretty straightforward story. Um, so there was a, a time in history around the 1700s um, where I like to say that there were two, these two aspects that happened right at the same time to perfectly create this modern obstetrics, which was um, science and, and the idea of becoming a doctor was becoming more popular. So before it wasn't, it wasn't as much of a thing, but it was becoming more popular for people to want to be doctors, to want to learn about the body and germ theory and all these different things. And at the very same time in the U.S., slavery was presenting this issue because slave women were being made to have babies pretty much year after year after year. And they were also being sexually exploited, which meant they were being raped. They were being um, just anything you can imagine in a way to sexually exploit a person was happening to slaves. Mm. And there was no ability for them to rest or get any type of um, healing for their bodies. And so eventually that became an issue with reproductive health. And slaves started having all of these well, not even, I wouldn't say a variety, but really just a couple of issues that arose from that. And so here come these curious doctors who are like, you know, wanting to start their career in their scholar um, into obstetrics. And it was the perfect combination. It was the perfect storm because they had these women who had no rights, who had no autonomy. They had no ability to to give consent or say no. And so it was like, look, you're broken. You're a defective product. So I'm going to figure out how to fix you. And it doesn't matter if it hurts. It doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable, if it's violating you. Um, this is what I get to do because you have no autonomy. And so we have people like J. Marion Sims and his contemporaries who literally would rent slaves and take them to his slave quarters and his cabin and experiment on them. And some of these girls were as young as like 16 years old. And it, it's so strange because without this ability to exploit these bodies, we wouldn't be where we are today. Because J. Marion Sims goes down as the father of modern obstetrics and gynecology. 
I mean, the father of modern gynecology because he created and started using the speculum and he created the Sims position and he figured out how to fix the vaginal fistula. And so he goes on to help all of these women and teach all of these other people, but it was all coming down to being able to experiment on unwilling participants. Yeah. And so that kind of created this ideology that interweaved into obstetrics and you can still see it today. You know, you lay down on the bed, I do what I have to do and you just be quiet. Don't ask any questions. Just say yes. Just say okay. And that continued to really infiltrate the ideology of being a physician. Yeah. It's all built on I'm in control and you're not. And that was also weaved into the ideas of the idea of what a woman can can be capable of intellectually. Because at the time, it's like, yeah, we don't have any respect for slaves, but even for women to a certain capacity, they felt like women can't think straight either because y'all are women. Yeah. There are some uh, like textbooks and things that at the time would be called science that basically said, because you have a womb, you are intellectually inferior. You can't think straight. <laughs> Basically, because you got hormones, you got a womb, you bleed. So that just makes you kind of lesser than a man. And so when you build a whole science on that, you're bound to have issues like we have today with obstetric violence and lack of informed consent and all of those things. And then a couple years after that happens, you've got the obliteration of midwifery, where Mm. doctors just were like, You know, if you can't read and write, you can't be a midwife. And if all of the midwives were either immigrants who just came to the U.S. or former slaves, there was no way that they could read and write to pass board exams. And in some states, they just completely said midwifery is now illegal. So there was a very clear it's funny because. Doctors are, I I, I often hear doctors say stuff like, you know, doulas are the ones who don't like doctors, Mm. right? But it's like, we're coming from literally hundreds of years of y'all not liking us. (laughs) And that being midwives, doulas, and just women in general. Yeah. So yeah, there might be a little animosity there. And like how, like where does liking really come into play when you're in a situation where it's very clear that there is a sort of an energy of domination at play, right? Where does liking really come out? Because that's a, like, that's a equal thing. And that's very clearly not what's happening. Yeah. And just that there's this kind of this sense of paternalism, which is like, Father knows best. Father makes the decision. And even now you can see sometimes when I go to a birth, not to say that partners shouldn't work together, but I'll sometimes be in a situation where it's like, if the dad says no, then it's a no. And mm. I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not coming to a decision together. That's just you handing your power to him. Yeah. 
and and that is deeply ingrained into the medical system, especially in obstetrics as well. So it's just it's so much to unpack there. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. And I think it's important to say that this is, you know, we're not sitting here and saying that every doctor and every man that is in a birthing environment or even midwives as well, because it's not really a gendered violence in this case, mm-hmm. um, that they're all blatantly and consciously abusive. Some of this right. is so subtle. Like you don't even notice sometimes the way that things are being phrased or the way that consent is not really clear because you may have even been asked for consent, but then there there was the fear thrown on top or like, it's just subtle. So it's, it's not that every doctor that walks into the room or every sort of more medical minded midwife walks into the room with the intent of harm. And that's not what's happening. It's so much more subtle than that. It's so, and I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, it it does get into this egoic type of argument, like, I'm not a bad person. Like, I love my patients. And, you know, then you got the people who are like, I had an OB and I had a great experience. And I'm like, that's not the point. (laughs) You You can go to a restaurant that has one star and say, my food tasted good. It's still some issues, obviously, with the establishment. Yeah, And I think that's the part that we're kind of missing. It's like, like we said earlier, it's, it's, it's almost invisible. We can't even fully recognize it. But I think that also goes down to just living in general and how generally when it comes to things like where we buy our food, where we buy our clothes, um, how we get money and how we survive it's very interdependent on the system on this like hierarchy and we're, we've come so far removed from depending on ourselves and the earth and that's it. So it's become so normalized for us to just hand over our power and feel like, well, because I wasn't, you know, consciously traumatized, it's okay. But it's like, it is so much more than you just walking away happy or sad. Yeah, it's so much bigger than that. Uh, absolutely. And it starts, as you're saying, in how we live, how we're brought up and the systems that we're part of that we also feel like we often don't even know if we do have a choice. And right. sometimes they don't know if we actually have a choice. I know in my pregnancy, a midwife that I wasn't connected to was questioning, you know, whether she could report me. And, you know, she can't, but she didn't know that or like she technically could, but there was nothing illegal about not having a medical care provider. And so a lot of people, you know, were in this situation where people themselves don't know they have a choice, then the care providers don't really know if we have a choice. And it becomes this really messy kind of let's just all like listen to whoever is in charge and Mm -hmm. like you know isn't it just more important that baby survives and of course it's important but there's so much more to it we need whole mothers on the other side of birth Mm -hmm. and we need mothers that feel like they are in charge of that process exactly so kind of jumping on sort of this I feel like, you know, we spoke to how subtle some of that 
is in terms of what what happens in the birth space and pregnancy space. And for me, that kind of, I guess, leads into the topic of racism, because that's subtle too, right? For a lot of us, especially if, you know, we are not a person of color, it can feel so subtle, we don't notice it. And you, and it's probably not so subtle to people of color, but, you know, some mm-hmm. of us have blinders on. Um, and I guess that makes me kind of think about, you said something on an Instagram live that really, I felt it in my body when you spoke it. And the words were that the reason you're afraid of home birth is the history of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Will you unpack yeah. that a little bit? Because I thought that was a really powerful statement. Yeah. Whew. Okay. So we have to, again, we have to go back to that, that time period right after slavery. And you have this, you know, budding modern obstetrics, modern gynecology that's happening. And at first it was not popular. So at first midwives were trusted to deliver babies, to give any type of reproductive health care. And that's how it was for a long time, pretty much forever. Um, It was women taking care of women. And so when men came onto the scene, first slaves knew, okay, if you go and you get experimented on, you might die. Like that was normal for slaves to feel like, or to know that this person doesn't know what they're doing. So you know, it, it could be a death sentence if you get sent off to that mm. J. Marion Sims guy or to one of his, you know, contemporary to one of his peers because they don't know what they're doing. Right. So first it was the slaves who knew don't trust the men. <laughs> Not yet. And then once the men started to offer their services to upper class women, white women, there was also this resistance like you know, I, my grandmother and my mother and I have always used midwives. Why should I use a man who doesn't even really know what he's doing? And this was also the case because there was right after. So in the 1800s, I want to say the 1850s, um, you had Irish immigrants coming over. And so the Irish immigrant women also were resistant because they didn't feel like we should trust, you know, a man to take care of us. So collectively, there was this resistance towards male doctors. And at the time, you have to remember that there wasn't an option for females to be doctors at that point, Hmm. especially if you're an immigrant, especially if you're uh, Black. You could be a midwife, but you cannot be a doctor. So with the doctor's what the male doctors decided to do was, look, we want to take care of women, not altruistically, but because we feel like this will be a profitable business and because we're curious and because men had already taken over so much of the sexuality, the sexual lives of women. They're raping them. They're forcing them to have babies as slaves. They're, it's just a free-for-all, basically. <laughs> And so this was kind of like the last the last thing to take over is 
well, let's just take over the reproductive health care as well. And so because women didn't fully trust doctors, they trusted midwives, they started this, um, this kind of campaign, this unofficial campaign to smear midwives. And so you can, it's hard to find on Google, but you can find, if you type in Joseph D. Lee, you can find some direct quotes of him who, he was a, a OB, like in the 1800s, of him saying basically that midwives are dirty, they're stupid, they don't know what they're doing. And if you choose to have a midwife, you're basically, you know, putting yourself and your baby in danger. And this was the rhetoric that was spread throughout the society and the communities. So eventually it worked. And it really worked because you had upper class women who had these white doctors in their ear basically saying, you know, look at me. I'm a well-to-do man. I'm wealthy. I'm clean. You know, I have a high status in society. Don't you want me to deliver your baby? Not that dirty old stupid midwife. Mm. And so the more that they got the more affluent people to shift, which we pretty much know from history, we kind of a lot of times base the culture off of the people who are on top, the rich people, the affluent people, the successful people. They set the cultural standards. So then it trickles down. And that in combination, this is the most important part to remember. There was this synergistic relationship between them trying to edge midwives out culturally by saying that they didn't know what they were doing. But at the same time, this is when the industrial revolution was happening. And so we have urban civilization taking off, which means you go from living on the countryside and you're out working in the field every day, even if you weren't a slave, you're outside, you're fresh air, clean water, clean food, to going and living in some tiny, tiny little cramped, dirty apartment. And there's no sanitation. So there was outbreaks of disease, outbreaks of sickness and illness. And this was compromising the reproductive health of women. So if you don't have a healthy body, you can't have a healthy birth. So right, all of these things were happening right at the same time. So you've got women who have rickets, right? And it's like, you know, you've got the deformed pelvis. And of course, you're going to have issues, not because birth is dangerous, because you're a sick person. Hmm. And the way that that sickness is affecting you is getting in the way of you having a healthy birth. So right around that time, you have all these women who are getting, you know, these illnesses. You've got these men who are like, okay, we can handle this better than midwives because we have the capability to go to school and learn and we have access to these different tools and blah, blah, blah. So it just, it was the perfect storm. And the rhetoric was, again, Joseph D. Lee was really the leader in this rhetoric that birth is not safe. That's why you need a doctor. And so they were able to do that because they had the status, they had the power, they had the cultural influence to both take down midwives, but also to take care of these sick women. But the rhetoric never stopped, right? So we figure out germ theory, we figure out sanitation, we stop being as sick, things get better, but the rhetoric stays the same. 
you can't birth by yourself. You don't want to birth with a midwife because that's unsafe. Remember your grandmother who almost died or your aunt Mm -hmm. who had that stillborn? And the crazy part is that they were experimenting the whole time. So some of the reasons why people were having issues was because of the doctor, Mm. right? So they may have been doing some like uh, quasi uh, treatment and it wasn't working and and they blamed the woman. Like something's wrong with you. This is why you need a doctor. And so I know it's, it's a lot to put together because um, it's, it's not a linear thing. It's like all these things happening at one time. But the premise is, you know, white male doctors save lives, basically. Yeah. And that never changed. And you're defective. And I encourage people to look up Joseph B. Lee because he's the one who really set the standard for the idea that birth is dangerous in nature. And mm. so that's why you need to be in a hospital with a doctor. Mm. So I'll add a link that, for that yeah. for sure to find um, information about that for people that want to dive more into it. Yeah. And, and all of that just centers around white, not necessarily. And when I say white supremacy, I want to make sure that people understand it has nothing with it has nothing to do with whiteness like your skin color actually being white it has nothing to do with that it just happens to do with the fact that the people who were in power were white yeah so we can just categorize this as white supremacy because they were using certain tools to colonize birth yeah and so when i say white supremacy it's it's really just those group of people who had that certain type of ideology and exercise that power in a certain way. It's not, oh, every white person thinks like this, or it's not that at all. It's just that moment in time. And that's essentially what a lot of what we're talking about today. It's the, it's what's happening systemically rather than individually. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting as you're talking because you know, building on that midwife came back into play by regulating themselves, by playing by the rules and becoming more medicalized, essentially, nurse-based. And there's something that I find very interesting. I don't know if, if that's, you know, happens in the U.S. because it's a slightly different birthing environment than it is here in Denmark, where I am at the moment. But in Denmark, you know, in the hospital, it's similar to the UK in the sense that they're like it's midwife based, of course, with doctors added in there. But um, and then you have, you know, access to a midwife from the hospital if you want for free to have a home birth, if you want a hospital based midwife. And something that's often used in kind of to the effect of not wanting people to go against a regulation or against protocol is that so say using the example of sort of going past 42 weeks and the whole sort of issue of induction Mm -hmm. is that the whole reason that birth is safe is because we have these medically professional Mm. midwives And they're the ones protecting women. And if women start 
making their own choices without their midwives following regulation and protocol. They are sort of putting in danger everything we've put into work that has made birth safe. So essentially, right. it's repeating a bit of that history that still, as a woman, you're not capable of making your own decision, and you need someone there to save you and make them for you. Put a little bit, sort of bluntly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just find that really interesting that that's where midwifery is at today, that is repeating that history that you just spoke to. Exactly. And I have, you know, a very hard time calling the, these types of people midwives yeah. because, you know, I'm, I'm constantly saying we need to invent another word <laughs> that is going to um, represent what these people are because you're basically a quasi OB. Yeah. It just didn't take you 12 years and you can't do a cesarean, but you have the same philosophy. You push the same interventions and there's not, that's not to say that um, there aren't midwives working in hospitals that really have the heart to take a holistic approach. It's about the reality of can you or can't you? Yeah. And anytime I remember speaking to this midwife and it kind of asking her, well, what is it like working in a hospital? Are you are you really practicing midwifery? And she said no. And I'm like, well, then why are we calling you a midwife? Because now it's confusing and it's misleading. And I'm starting to see how a lot of people are choosing the hospital because they have midwives and they feel that, oh, I will have a totally different experience because I have a midwife and you might have a different experience rather than having an OB, but it's still a medical experience at the end of the day. Yeah. As long as regulation and protocol becomes or comes before a woman's choice, you don't have freedom. Right. And exactly. I guess what like I feel like is happening I don't know if it's happening now. I mean, it's probably been happening a while, but um, is that doulas essentially are going down the same route as midwifery did and yes. regulating themselves out of what it truly means to show up as a woman, supporting other women through pregnancy on, and birth on their terms. Mm -hmm. And I'd be really curious to hear what your thoughts are on regulation <laughs> of the doula profession. I'm sure it feels like yes. a loaded question. but <laughs> No, you're asking all the right questions. Okay, good. <laughs> um, all the stuff that I feel like we need to be talking about and looking at and thinking good. about. Um, so honest, I'll just start off with, I, I don't feel like, I'll say this, I don't feel like it will be beneficial for birth sovereignty to regulate doulas. Now, some doulas are, are wanting to be regulated for business reasons and for money reasons. And so that we can, you know, like at times during COVID, maybe if we were regulated, we could be led into hospitals, right? Mm. And so it's more of a logistical thing. Yeah. And I can understand that, you know, I, I can understand that perspective. I don't fully agree with it, but I get it. But when it comes down to what direction are we collectively moving into, are we moving into a direction where people think they have autonomy, but they really don't? People think that they trust their bodies, but they really don't. 
people think they're having this uh, natural, whatever that means anymore, birth experience, but they're not. And it, be- it becomes kind of this matrix, you know, like you think you're, you're experiencing this thing and you're not. And with doula regulation, it's exactly what you said. It's, we're going down the same path as midwifery because it's going to get to a point where only certain organizations are allowed to uh, train doulas, which means that will limit the access to be able to become a doula. And that's going to shift the way in which people um, care for people in their community. Because I know here in the U.S., like, there's, I would say there's one doula agent, doula organization that a lot of people are familiar with and mm-hmm. they train through. And it's frustrating for me because that one organization does not cater to every single community in the U.S. Mm. It just doesn't. But if you're telling me that, I don't know, five or 10 years from now, I'm going to have to be under that particular organization in order to work. It's it's the exact same thing that, that happened with midwifery. And it's it's really surprising to me that doulas aren't seeing this unfolding. Me too. Me <laughs> it's too. Like, come on, y'all. It was literally like in the 1900s. Like we have people alive to tell the story right now about fighting for legalizing midwifery, fighting for all of these different things. And if you go back and look at, because these are the same doulas who in the same breath will say, well, midwifery was legalized. It was, it was, um, it was banned and, you know, it wasn't right how they made midwives stop working and all of this, but that was possible because they said, if you don't train through, first of all, midwives didn't even have a collective organization because it wasn't possible. There wasn't the accessibility for a midwife to come together with a group of other midwives. It just, it wasn't possible Yeah. based on, you know, income, based on access to even just traveling to be able to travel and come together as a group, communication, all of these things, which at the time you had to be in a certain socioeconomic bracket to have access to. And I remember reading in, I can't remember what book it was, but it could have been multiple books where it was like the main reason that midwifery was taken down is because they did not have a formal organization to protect themselves, to make themselves look, you know, good, to make Mm. themselves look serious enough for the white man's approval. Mm. And that was, you know, you can look back and find these quotes of white doctors saying like, y'all are not even organized. How can you continue to serve? Y'all don't even have any type of organization. And so that's how they were able to, to become more um, appealing because when you approach someone and you say, look, we've got this organization of 20 doctors and we've trained here and there and we have these set of rules and protocols, you seem more official. Yeah. And that is exactly what's happening with doulas. We yeah. feel like, oh, we need to come together. Not to say that we shouldn't have an organizing body for ourselves, but the whole idea of it being regulated is just, you know, what, what is the point? 
<laughs> what's the point of hiring a doula if we can't even do what, what we're trying to do? And I remember going to a birth and I had to sign this waiver. And it was like, I can't, basically it said, I can't use essential oils. I can't use herbs. I can't give the patient anything. I can't disagree with the doctor. And at the very bottom, it said, if, you know, the medical provider sees it fit, you can be kicked out. And I said, well, damn, here we go. History repeats itself. It's just a matter of time. And that was right in in my area where I live. So very interesting. I'm I'm not really excited about that. And I really hope that people begin to wake up fast enough so that doesn't become a thing. So yeah. that we can kind of stop that. Yeah, I really hope so too. I mean, for me, the heart of it is that I'm not to say whether it's right or wrong that people, you know, organize themselves within their profession and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of try and find a, some kind of straight and narrow for people, everyone to get on board with. But the fact of the matter is that, to me at least, the fact of the matter is that inevitably that will mean sort of the death of what it truly means to be a doula and mm -hmm. truly showing up to support another woman because if you're supporting another woman you're showing up on her terms and if you already have an organized sort of understanding of how you can support and you can't support and you can only support as long as she follows the rules where's the dueling yeah. in that it's not a duel right. to me it comes back to what you said you know that we need new words because I'm with you, midwife and doula, <laughs> I don't really know what they mean anymore because they certainly don't mean showing up fully for a woman who's pregnant and birthing her child on her terms. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like it really comes down to fear. Yeah. And it all is just emanating from that same place. Like you're in the hospital because you're afraid. Yeah. And you're trusting, you're putting all of your trust into your OB and you don't even trust yourself because you're afraid. And now it's like with the midwives, there's this, I feel like this kind of fear, like I'm a midwife, but I work in the hospital because that's where it's safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I feel like it's going to be the same thing with doulas. Like, well, I got a doula, but she's from, you know, the, the whatever, whatever organization. So it's safe. And there's this constant fear of birth, fear of the process, fear just in general of everything. And I think that's what's guiding us and has been guiding us for so long. Us just being afraid of our own bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're speaking to something I actually really wanted to to bring in, which is that, and I want to, I guess, preface it by saying that there are many doulas, including yourself, that are doing beautiful work. And adding to that, I often feel that like the concept of doulas, which I feel you're, you just spoke to, is kind of presented like a solution to the systemic problems that are within midwifery and obstetric mm -hmm. childbirth care. and I just feel like they become more like a band-aid. So you don't really necessarily need a woman in power. You just need a 
doula in power kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's like, what are we really sort of progressing on? And which brings yeah. me to, you mentioned sort of certain organizations, and some of them I know are pretty big on doulas not advocating, not speaking up <laughs> for systemic change. And yes. I'd, I'm really curious on your thoughts in terms of like, being a doula that advocates for systemic change and not being a complacent part of smoothing out a system that is, you know, inherently mistreating women every day. And I don't know, do you think it's a doula's sort of responsibility to advocate? Is it even a part of being a doula? Does it go outside those lines? Like, Mm -hmm. there's a whole lot there, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's a whole lot. Well, first, so I'll, I'll say this. I don't, I would go as far as to say that doulas at this point are perpetuating the problem mm. because we're marketing ourselves as a potential solution to an entire medical hierarchy that not just has control over our minds and our bodies, but then also has in some ways um, government-like authority. And there's no way that as a doula, as one doula, I can come up against that. And, you know, it it becomes crystal clear when here in the U.S. we have CPS, Child Protective Services. And so it's crystal clear that me as a doula, I can't do much for you because at some point, at any point, if they feel like you're putting your baby in danger, they can call the police. They can literally call CPS. And now we're looking at a whole legal issue. And so I'm kidding myself if I think that I, as a doula, can protect you to that extent. Now, I may know all of the right words to say, the right phrases, the right legal terms to use. You know, I may know all of the alternative methods that we can try before this and then the third, right? But that's like having a GPS system. That's not going to protect you. That's going to help you navigate it but that's not necessarily going to be a solution to you being within that system. And so I don't want to market myself as this solution to the problem because I know that I'm not. Mm. On an individual basis, I might make your birth better. Yes. But a solution to the system? Absolutely not. We'd be kidding ourselves if we thought that. We're drinking the (laughs) Kool-Aid, you know? But um, as far as is it our responsibility? I think it goes back to understanding what a doula really is. Because if we take, if we just look at birth, if we isolate birth all by itself, we take it out of the context of needing an OB, needing a hospital, needing a midwife even, and all of this stuff. And we just look at, if I was in my living room having a baby, would I want support? Yes. But I want someone to hold my hand and rub my back and you know, sprinkle some essential oils on my feet and hit my acupressure points. Yes. And so at the end of the day, I feel like as a doula, I don't, I don't know if Mm. it's our responsibility to come up against the system. I feel like at the core of it, my responsibility is to be with you, whatever capacity you need that to be. And it just so happens that we've landed in the year 2020, where there's this medical hierarchy And if me being with you means helping you navigate that system, yes, I will do that. And I will not 
I will try my best not to um, tiptoe around certain things that I know are wrong and let it happen. I will try my best to advocate. I will try my best to stand up for you. I will try my best to help you protect your autonomy, right? But when it comes down to this whole responsibility thing, I think that's where the exact problem lies Mm. because women have been, birthing people have been conditioned to give up their responsibility. Because the moment that you say, I am choosing to go against your medical advice, or I'm going to have a free birth, or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z that you don't agree with, you're not just taking back your autonomy, you're taking back your responsibility. And I think that's what we're afraid of. I think we're afraid that if I call the shots and something goes wrong, the blood is on my hands. Yeah. And we don't want to deal with that ethically I think we have made fear a virtue it's virtuous it's good to be afraid it's good to give your power away to your doctor it's smart to go to the hospital because the the free birthing hippie home birth folks those people are irresponsible that's the first thing that they will call somebody like that is irresponsible yeah But it's paradoxical because that person is taking that responsibility on and saying, I'll educate myself. I'll trust my body. I'll listen to this experience and let it guide me. But, you know, collectively, we're just not there yet. Even with myself and my own story, you can see how clear as day I was not ready to take on that responsibility if something went wrong. Yeah. Because I had been so conditioned to believe, you know, the, the smartest thing you can do is give that responsibility to the medical professional. So as a doula, I feel like I can personally, I can't speak for everybody. I feel like it's my responsibility just as the type of person that I am to stand up and advocate because what's the point of me being there if I don't, but collectively, I'm more so about getting birthing people to see that this is your autonomy and your responsibility. Do you want to take it or do you want to give it away? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I guess it, it comes back to how we live, right? How we arrive at birth and pregnancy. If we're not already taking responsibility for other aspects of our life or even how we foster autonomy and sovereignty in sort of our culture at large, then how are we meant to do it once just because we're pregnant? Exactly. (laughs) It's certainly much, much bigger. And that's also something that, you know, I feel like throwing in there is that I feel like it is a little bit unfair sometimes sort of with how the system is, what we're kind of asking women to do. I mean, ideally it's great if everyone feels like, you know, diving deep in sort of all the knowledge around their choices, educating themselves before they birth, but it's also a bit of a tall order to all of Mm -hmm. a sudden expect everyone to be a person that can speak up, stand up and know their rights, because that's not everyone. That's not even how we raise sort of each other in our world. I agree. I definitely agree. And I, I, 
you know, it's, it's, I always kind of want to tell people like it's when I get these questions and stuff, it's not cut and dry. It, it's, it's not one answer fits all because like you said, we're not even raised from the moment that we, you know, start our periods and we're deemed to be able to have a baby. It's like, all right, so now we're going to take you to the doctor and the doctor is going to tell you what to do right yeah. with birth control to get on with with things to put inside your body and how and there's no room for exploration there's no room for you know just learning your body and being with your body and just coming into it you know as a, a person who is an adolescent so yeah we're really raised under that idea that you know be a good girl and go to the doctor and do what the doctor says. And then you've got this radical person on Instagram telling you like, Hey, read some books, get into your body, listen to your body. And it's a lot to do in nine months, especially when there's so many other things to think about. You got to think about money. You got to think about, you know, your living situation and your partner. And it's like, if all of those things are aligned, then you might have time to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, like, I mean, I have a slightly different situation because, you know, women's wisdom is my work. So Mm -hmm. I had already dived into birth for so many years. And once, you know, I was pregnant with my son, I didn't really want to dive into it anymore. It was time to let it go in a way. There were certain Mm. aspects that I felt like that were sort of reoccurring for me that I wanted to sort of make fresh decisions on in a way. But I didn't want to dive into sort of, you know, birth book after birth book or anything like that. I had done it. And Mm -hmm. that felt like a really good place, but also a really rare place, right? Because it's only because it's been part of my own journey and work that I've been so immersed with birth. I don't attend birth, but birth sort of and pregnancy work at large Mm -hmm. that um, that you really arrive in like that because most people are not immersed in their bodies or their menstrual cycle or their sovereignty or sort of their own choice and voice and all these layers. Most people don't arrive there. So it is really, it's a lot. And there's certainly, you know, I hope, I don't know, I I certainly hope no one feels like the pressure that they have to show up in any way because it is a lot. It is totally a lot. And, um, I don't know, not to sound like a child, it's not really fair. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I I think about my first birth and how the majority of the time I was not with my midwife, which is funny because we have this whole big emphasis on like, make sure you're, you know, checking the heartbeat and we got to look out for these signs and X, Y, and Z. And I just think about how how undisturbed it was and how ignorant I was. Mm -hmm. And yet everything unfolded perfectly. She came out, there was nothing wrong. You know, even with that pregnancy, I had GBS. And I remember they couldn't get my IV in because I have like small veins or something like that. And they couldn't get my IV in. So I, I didn't even get the proper dose of antibiotics and still nothing happened. 
And I think sometimes being in that place of not knowing is almost just as powerful as being in a place of being super duper educated. Yeah. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the thing that I'm exploring right now is like, how do I encourage people to educate themselves to some degree? Like, you know, know where your cervix is and know like, um, you know, about your water breaking and that not being a sign of like the baby about to come out right now and your mucus plug and all that, you know, general information. But then also like letting all of that go and not overanalyzing and just being with the process, you know? And yeah. Yeah. I, love I think that. it's scary. Yeah. It's scary to, to even people like me. Cause it's like, well, what if something goes wrong? You know, we should, we should read those books and, and blah, 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 blah. But it's just like, how, how deep do you want to go? How much do you want to let go? Yeah. I mean, I know that for me, at least like something that I feel like we often forget when, so in my case where I like free birth was, you know, my preference and my choice, that was not out of being oblivious to that there are variations of birth. But Mm -hmm. when you understand a little bit more that an undisturbed birth is also often a huge factor in creating the best hormones for birth and keeping you safe, therefore, in the birth process, that also becomes, you know, you see birth a little bit differently. You see home birth and free birth, whatever you, you know, your choices a little bit differently because being undisturbed is also about safety. And that's something that I feel like is, you know, very easily forgotten when we go into sort of the whole realm of both midwifery and obstetrics that is really sort of based on constantly checking a woman. Mm -hmm. And it's not right or wrong, but there are hormones that need to flow in order to birth. And really, for me, in the end, it's not about what, you know, is right or wrong. It's about that a woman is in charge and she gets to choose whether that's appropriate for her in her birth and gets to follow her intuition on whether she feels intuitively that she wants a vaginal exam or she doesn't. And that's sort of the core of it. But I feel like we often forget what safety also means. And when we really understand birth, I will say that safety starts looking a little bit different than a doctor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's funny how you that in some cases, like if something goes wrong and you have a um, midwife and you're doing a home birth or you're doing a free birth or you're doing anything outside of like hospital OB, the normal knee jerk reaction is, well, if you would have went to the doctors, you know, everything would have been okay, probably. But you never hear people say, I had a successful home birth or I had a successful free birth. And if I would have went to the doctors, something probably could have gone wrong. Yeah, I would say I'm totally in that category. I definitely had a I had a very long labor. I labored for four and a half days. You can find out more about my birth on the podcast as well. But I had the type of birth that is simply a variation of normal but it is mm-hmm. not considered normal within midwifery care or medical care. It's right. just not. And I would very likely have had intervention had I even had a home birth midwife. 
depending on how I would have had that discussion, right? But I'm glad I didn't have to. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And I don't want to draw a line in the sand for anyone. But when you look at a, a person who talks about this in, in really great detail is Sarah Buckley. Yeah. And when you look at those hormones and even something as simple as induction, like let's just have the baby, you know, sooner because you're getting close to that 42 week mark. Something as simple as that can have a huge effect on not just your birth, but the actual health of your baby. And I encourage everyone to read her um, her work on the physiology of birth and the hormones of birth. And I, I remember reading this one thing that was very pivotal for me. And it basically, in so many words, said right before, like literally hours before you go into labor, your body is producing certain hormones and your baby is producing certain hormones. And one of those correlated to protecting the baby's brain, like so that mm. when you're having those intense contractions and those oxygen levels drop a little bit, your baby's brain is protected because mm. it has prepared itself for this process. And think about how many women go in for an induction and they're not even showing a, a little sign of being in labor. Their, you know, cervix is still firm, not open, no dilation, nothing. And imagine how many women go into the, that induction, not ready to have a baby. Body is not ready to have a baby. Baby is not ready to be born. And then experience some sort of a complication that leads them to have a cesarean that ultimately was unnecessary. Yeah. And we're not even having those type of conversations yet because the medical model hasn't even like considered this. And they're the ones that are supposed to be like ahead of us and more advanced than us. Yeah. And we're not even having those kind of conversations. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it really speaks to, I feel like where, you know, where we're sitting today is that it's complex, like it's layered and we also yeah. we have to get to a point where we're willing to kind of sit with all of these layers within birth and not be like do this do that this is safe this is unsafe mm -hmm. and just like kind of sit in the many nuances that are a part of birthing and also do a bit of the mystery that's part of it and along with all the knowledge that we do have and how we sort of relay that knowledge and statistic in a more sort of objective way as much as possible but we have to be willing to sit in the complexity together and I hope that's been part of what our conversation is today that it's not about demonizing doulas midwives doctors or anything but we have mm -hmm. to show up and raise some of the questions and be willing to say women are being mistreated there are injustices happening every day to mother and baby and it's not okay. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, we, we try to control so much about birth and we try to make it so safe in our own little rights. Doulas try to make it safe. Midwives try to make it safe. Doctors try to make it safe. And I think we all just collectively 
each each person in each position has to sit with the fact that it doesn't matter how much you do, how much you learn, how much you advocate. Sometimes you cannot, there's only so much that you can do as far as things being safe. Yeah. And just being able to sit with like, I'm not in control of this. Whatever happens to this mother and this baby and this, and these bodies that are working together, I can try to exert as much authority as possible, but ultimately I'm not in control of how this person reacts and what this body does. Yeah. And I think that's a hard pill to swallow because we all want mothers and babies and birthing people to be healthy and survive and have good birth outcomes. But it's almost like the more that we try to control it, the worse that it gets. Yeah. Yeah. We have to come back and allow a bit of that wild. And we can actually do that along with diving into the knowledge that we do have. They are not mutually except in any way. I mean, I'm kind of happy that we we are not trying to sort of tie this up with a neat bow. And uh, (laughs) this is what people need to do, because I really feel this conversation is more about having the conversation, raising some of these questions, and just talking about it. Because I think, I don't know, do you agree that's kind of where we're at? Yeah, I, I don't think it's so much about a specific decision, but just opening up to thinking about it and, and opening up to that level of awareness. Because sometimes awareness itself can shift your physical reality, just to be aware of something and think about something. So, you know, I'm not, I have biases of my own and I own up to them. Like, look, I, I'm all, I love natural birth. Okay. And it doesn't mean I, I dislike any other type, but that's just my wheelhouse. That's what I like to talk about. Fascinates me, the human body and how it births, but um, own up to our biases yeah, And just be able to say, like, I'm just in, I'm just exploring my bias right now. Mm. Right? I'm just, and me as a naturalistic person, I'm just going to explore that aspect of myself. And maybe midwives need to just explore what does it mean for me to be biased and feel like midwifery care is better and yeah. and what does it mean for OB to feel like you know and just sit with it and think about it and turn it over and yeah yeah <laughs> yeah thank you for that those are powerful questions and I feel like a great place to close even though I could continue forever probably talking I know right I looked at the time I was like what an hour and 30 minutes it'll be (laughs) the longest podcast but for good reason (laughs) um I really please share you have some amazing offerings that are you know pretty potent place to really dive into more of these questions so tell us about some of the different ways that you work with women Sure. So I am based in Maryland, which is close to D.C., and I serve this area as a birth doula and a birth photographer. Um, I also have lots of different virtual offerings. Right now, I do childbirth education, and it has an emphasis on holistic childbirth. So for people who really 
really want to have a natural birth, whatever that means for you, you're trying to avoid interventions. Um, I teach a course that's really based on one, how painful, how do we have a birth that is um, peaceful and positive and maybe even pleasurable. So I like to focus on that in my course. And I recently created a workshop to address racism in birth. And that centers on both the history of birth and how uh, we've gotten to this point, but also some of the current issues here in the U.S. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications, which means we're 243% more likely to die from childbirth than our white counterparts. Hmm. So in the workshop, we dive into that. We unpack that. We talk about things like implicit bias and what that means for people who are choosing to birth in hospitals and ultimately what are some solutions. And the last thing um, that I offer is a monthly PDF, which I call birth notes. And they're essentially um, me diving into a specific topic each month. So we did home birth and this month we're going to do ultrasounds and you'll get a 20 page PDF. It's kind of like a mini ebook with what I would consider to be important information about that topic. And you can use that to learn for yourself as a birth worker, or you can use that um, when communicating with your clients if you need something tangible to show them the information. Mm. And all of that stuff is on my Patreon, Her Holistic Path, and links to all of that stuff is on my website, herholisticpath.com. Perfect. And with that, it's time to close our conversation for today. And I feel like closing with a quote that I had on my wall during the pre-birth of my son. And it reads, there's a secret in our culture. And it's not that birth is painful, but that women are strong. And that's by Laura S. Harm. And with that sentiment, I also really recommend that you check out Olivia's Instagram and her YouTube channel at Her Holistic Path and definitely head over to her website. She offers so much for both pregnant mothers and doulas on the path of supporting truly mother-centered birth. And before you click pause, I would really love to hear from you as the listener what you're taking away with you from today's conversation. So head over to my website and share your comments. The link for this episode is in the show notes along with the links to find Olivia and the links to find more about some of the things we spoke about today. So thank you so much for coming on today, Olivia. It's been really amazing to talk with you and it's really beautiful and it actually feels quite invigorating, I feel, to see the powerful work that you're doing. So thank you. Well, thank you. you for having me on. I really, like I said, this is my favorite topic. So I'm always down to talk to people who are willing to go there. Because this is all I I ever really want to talk about most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of PsychoWise. If you love this podcast, please spread the love by sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you tune in to the show. This is the most effective way of sharing this women's wisdom with more women in the world. We're so much stronger together. I'm Indigo Moon Inamark. 
Until next time, I'm sending you love from my inner woman to yours.